Hey everyone, welcome to the Landlord Association podcast. I'm your host, George Gao. This is a podcast by the landlords and for the landlords in the greater Houston area. We'll discuss tips, strategies, techniques to help our listeners to be more educated and ultimately become more successful rental property owners and investors. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 20. Today we have an episode that we recorded a couple months ago with Nikhil Shah from SGRE Capital. Even though this was recorded pre-COVID-19, uh, the information is still very relevant today and uh, it's are always important to know once the market comes back. Also, we're hoping to catch up with Nikhil on a follow-up session uh, next couple weeks to see how the commercial real retail investors are doing in the current environment. And uh, just to give you a little background, I met Nikhil a couple months back in February at an area networking event where he was a panelist and one of his partners, Eugene Wong, was, who is also a past president and, and working at SGR Capital as well. And I was very impressed with Nikhil's knowledge on the commercial retail space and wanted him to bring on the show. Before founding SGRE Capital, Nikhil has done more than a billion dollar transactions at GE Capital and has more than six years of energy investment experience at Enron. Today, Nikhil and his team focus on value-added retail and neighborhood shopping malls, mainly in the greater Dallas and Houston areas. In this episode, he explains what does it mean to be a value-added operator and how he finds his assets that big operator doesn't want and difference in financing with other retail assets and the level of success he's able to achieve in, the, in his projects. If you're interested in learning more about retail real estate investment opportunities and what SGRE Capital does, you can get in touch with Nikhil at nshah at sgrecapital.com. That's N-S-H-A-H at sgrecapital.com. All right, hope you enjoy my conversation with Nikhil. Hi, Nikhil. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. All right, great. And uh, I met you last week at the area networking event. I was really impressed with everything you guys went through, multifamily, industrial, and uh, you present some of the information on the retail space. And we'll have a link to the, uh, some of the information you presented. Um, but uh, that's why I want to bring you back on. Your background and experience really speaks to some of the uh, areas that our podcast listeners are, could be really interested in learning from, uh, which is the retail space. Um, just can you give us a quick, people who don't know you and don't know SGRE Capital, can you give us a background of you know where you came from, how you got into it, and when you guys start SGRE? Sure. Uh, let me take you back. Uh, I've been in Houston since 92. I did my undergrad here, my business school here, uh, and I've been in uh, the real asset investment class for the past 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. We have invested in uh, power plants, pipelines, uh, to solar farms and commercial real estate. And first, uh, almost 12 to 15 years I spent at, uh, at the big uh, companies that were investing uh, heavily uh, around the globe. And then I started as Sherry around five years ago uh, with two other guys. Yeah. Uh, I think you're downplaying some of your background. <laughs> I mean, you, you were at G Capital, right? And then you kind of started a solar firm to uh, Solar energy company. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a solar a utility scale solar farm. Yeah. I uh, I partnered with a private equity group out of Spain. Okay. Yeah, um, and it's almost similar to a real estate asset in the sense that uh, that asset is under contract with the city of Austin for twenty five years. Mm -hmm. So it pays you a fixed rent. Okay. For twenty five years, and then uh, you install all the panels in a, in three hundred acres. Mm. Um, so you in, that's uh, all that cost is up front day one. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, you know, besides the sun shining, there's not really any maintenance or any significant cost. So um, you get steady cash flow. And so we had MetLife as our insurance, as our partner, okay. um, uh, as, um, um, you know, they love this asset because it's a long term 25 year cash flow with a good uh, tenant like the city of Austin. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we did that in 2012. Uh, when we did it, it was one of the best. I mean, it was the biggest uh, operational plant in, in the U.S. Yeah. And uh, it's it's good. Um, uh, but it's not uh, the solar industry is dependent on tax incentives. So it's heavily dependent on like uh, MetLife or insurance companies or someone who needs tax benefits. So my acquisition sure. cycle is very, very tough because I'm competing with some other like big guys like uh, Warren Buffett's energy company yeah. or, uh, or Strategics. Uh, they do deals just because they want to do green stuff, not really because of financials. Oh, okay. So, wow. That's uh, interesting. Yeah. So then I kind of got bored uh, and, and said, go back into commercial real estate mm -hmm. where I can do a, be more active, yep. it's more fun. 
And uh, so I think we can spend an hour just talking about your background. I, I read some of the things that I was like, wow, that's going to be interesting. We can do that on a different podcast. So how did you get into, uh, so you, after that, you want to get in, get in commercial space. Why did you pick retail and you know, how, why did you pick kind of the Houston and Dallas markets? Sure. Um, this is, uh, of course, uh, you know, my training from GE Capital is uh, uh, before you do anything, you need to kind of have a strategic reason for it. Mm-hmm. And um, so when uh, my solar cycle between 2008 to 2012, if you remember the recession, real estate was uh, at the, at, uh, uh, was suffering badly. Yep. Uh, it didn't make sense to be in that space, and so I was doing uh, solar. And when in 2012 onwards, the market was coming back. And then we looked at, we studied uh, the major factors, where the population growth is, where the employment growth mm-hmm. is, and Houston was actually tall, number one city in the country at that time, mm-hmm. just because our oil prices were at hundred bucks, yeah. right? And and uh, these are the two fundamental factors, you know, uh, uh, Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, all four cities are in the top 10 cities for growth in both these population and employment factors. Right. And so um, it, this was my market and also, when you are based here in Houston, you want to kind of control within a particular area. Uh, and, and, and so you can't say, hey, I will go buy something in California, I'll go buy something in Florida. Yep. It just costs too much to go back and forth, first right. of all. Second thing is, you are not local to that market. So right. you kind of be within that uh, span of control. Right, you have boots um, on the ground, you have the ecosystem, you know the bankers, you know the appraiser, you know the neighborhoods. I mean, right. I mean that's... Not only it you know it takes time to develop, but also it becomes very valuable when you do a deal, right? Right. Yeah. And and especially when you're uh, it's your company and you're entrepreneurial, you got to be there first, right? Yeah. Uh, when I was at GE, we had thirty five hundred properties around the world, mm-hmm. but everything was controlled out of Connecticut. Yeah. But they can afford to do it because you know uh, we have fifteen hundred people yeah. <laughs> supporting it. When you are starting your own company, you can't be spread out too quickly. So you kind of concentrate. Absolutely. Uh, but the data is, uh, we do a lot of data analysis and say, okay, why Dallas within Dallas, which submarkets, uh, within Houston, which submarkets, mm-hmm. and uh, then you kind of pick uh, the locations. Right. And uh, what is it attractive about retail space or shopping centers as opposed to multifamilies or, you know, RV parks? Sure. So uh, the most common uh, sectors are multifamily, Mm -hmm. uh, office, uh, retail, and uh, industrial, right? These are the Mm -hmm. four classic ones. And if you do a 50-year history, the two best performing asset classes have been multifamily and office uh, uh, at a very, very high level, Mm -hmm. okay? and, but when we started looking at uh, uh, the market here in 2014, 2015, we felt like multifamily boom time was from 2008 to 2014, where the demand supply really were a mismatch. The demand was always high, the supply was short. Uh, because, there was, because of the uh, recession, there was not a lot of construction in apartment complexes. And because of foreclosures, a lot of people were moving into apartments. Mm-hmm. And so there was always natural demand. So by 2008 to 2014, that demand had been met. Mm. Um, and so we felt like, hey, it's going to go into an oversupply mode, so it might not be the right place. Right. Um, sa- same thing with uh, office space. Uh, it's, uh, well, it's dependent on, you know, it, you need more dollars, first of all, to be in that place. Right. Um, and, and we are very energy intensive dependent. So it, that wasn't my segment. Uh, in retail, we found that, hey, look, um, Amazon is uh, the Amazon effect, right? It can kick out a lot of big box players, but it cannot kick out your small players, which is, you know, all service-based, your medical tenants, your ha- uh, hair salon tenants, your nail salons, your coffee shops. These are all available. Yeah. And if you have grown up in Houston, you know that, hey, Houston is growing by suburbs all around spread out, right? Yeah. And these are all 2,000 homes, 3,000 homes being built. And once you are there after work, you don't come back out to downtown or anything, right? right? So you depend on those little strip centers and neighborhood centers that serve your, um, right. uh, and gives you the services. Yeah, yeah. You can't go to Amazon for a haircut. You exactly. Can't, you can't go to Amazon to like get your nails done, or get a CPA, and things like that. Right. Yeah, those are kind of you can't be replaced just by you know the 
new next food delivery thing or something like that. Right. I mean, yeah. it's it's not very sexy. It doesn't get the press release mm-hmm. that hey, you know, big retail like Macy's or big stores and stuff like right. that. But these are everyday stuff that yeah. people see, and that if you acquire it right or if you build it right, yeah. uh, you can make decent amount of money in that. Right. And so we decided to focus on that. Okay. Good. And uh, I think both things you said about multifamily and office kind of played out too, right? I mean, if you look at the occupancy for the multifamily, it's kind of harboring about 90, 89%. Um, so, and, you know, based on our, uh, what the presentation of the presenter said, I mean, there's a lot of supply coming in the next month, the uh, next year or two, and really demand is trying to keep up. It's not really there yet. So, uh, I mean, um, it's true. <laughs> Sometimes the, we do get a little oversupply in the, in the cycle, depends where we are. Uh, and same thing with office space. I mean, obviously, uh, oil price had a lot to do with it, but, um, you know, like, starting from 2014, it's kind of been a little slight downward trend, especially in the Houston area. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's tough. And, and multifamily over the last four years has been not because uh, the demand is rising. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of investor capital is like, hey, I need yield. It's flooding. And right. uh, a lot of financing is available from the government uh, uh, at 3% fixed. Yeah. So people are just buying stuff. And therefore, people are building just so they can sell it to investors, not because new people are moving in all the time. Right. The absorption rates are, you know, um, uh, historical occupancy has always been 84%. 10 years mm-hmm. um, and to go up to 1994 it's a little tough and yep. and so uh, we felt like hey our segment was uh, uh, the demand has not caught up yet so I think if we, we it's okay if we are developing there yeah I mean that that doesn't mean that they're not good to be had of course it's always you know diamonds in the rough and gems and you can polish up but uh, yeah just from a general sector asset class viewpoint. I mean, right. Those are the things right. that you look for. Right. Great. And, um, I mean, you mentioned those neighborhood centers were, you know, more in the community. Uh, there are ass- things that, uh, assets and uh, services that cannot be replaced by big shop, big box. Is that what you focus on? You didn't, you're not focusing on malls. You're, you're not focusing on, like, the big box shopping centers. Um, you know, you, is that your niche? Uh, at the moment, yes, okay. because uh, within retail, uh, you have to break it down. Within retail, yeah. also, there are like six, seven se- uh, segments. Mm-hmm. One is, you know, uh, the grocery-anchored shopping centers, the big Kroger-anchored ones, right? And then you have uh, shopping malls. Then you have lifestyle centers like Uptown Park. Yeah. Um, and then you have outlet malls. So, uh, and then you have neighborhood centers uh, which are anchored and unanchored, right? Right. So I looked at it as like grocery anchored. I can't play. I can't develop that because I don't have those relationships. It's already dominated by the three main players in Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me to go to HEB, they may not give me a shot to develop one. Second thing is from an acquisition standpoint, they are the number one choice for all the major REITs to acquire. Mm-hmm. So my money is going to be more costly than uh, uh, any REIT. So you kind of lock, lock that out. Yeah. The uptown parks, it's just too costly for me to build uh, and speculative. Um, and so we kind of went asset by asset and said, hey, we don't want to be in outlet malls. A lot of people make money in that, but that's yeah. not our specialty. I can't control it. Yeah. Um, but this neighborhood centers, I can do it. All right. Uh, just to explain to listeners, what, what's a REIT, people who are not familiar? Uh, real estate investment trusts, uh, they are public companies uh, that have sold shares and raised a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, because they essentially sold shares, it didn't really cost them anything. And uh, they go and buy, uh, ma- all the major real estate in all of U.S. is owned by REITs. Uh, and they, they invest it, and you can buy a share in REIT and you get a steady dividend of 4 or 5%. Right. So they they had just super low cost of capital. They go out and they can buy things at three cap, four cap, right? And, uh, right. Class A um, assets. Yeah, they'll do class A stuff, and once they run out of class A, they'll start buying class B, right. and and they're willing to pay more because it doesn't cost more. So you're competing with those guys. Okay. All right. So now let's now we you know we like the neighborhood shopping centers, and uh, so what's your strategy uh, going? I mean, do you, kind of do you do ground up developments or do you also do value ads uh, for those kind of deals? How do you source your deals? Yeah, so so strategically we said, okay, we could just buy a steady center that's already full. Mm-hmm. 
Then we looked at it as like, hey, look, uh, it produces a 6% or 7% return or cap rate, for example. I can't pay my investors enough uh, and myself to kind of do that. So the strategy that we went was value add and uh, new builds. Because just like uh, uh, the downside of the neighborhood centers is it's very popular investment. So everybody's trying to buy it. Um, but at the same time, we look at the trends and new towns are actually being developed in Dallas. Frisco was, you know, just became real super popular five years ago. Um, and, and all of North Dallas is expanding. So where you have no product to buy, so you actually better to build, right? So uh, we built from the ground up in that fast growing areas. Even in Houston, we focused in Cyprus. Uh, we put in a new development. Um, and as long as you know we acquire the land correctly and we keep our costs, uh, our development costs well, uh, we can build it, fill it, and sell it. That was our mantra. And on the acquisition side is we learned that um, the big companies who have bought a lot of assets, they buy portfolios. And when they buy portfolios of 50 assets, they really like 45 of them. The five they have to buy because nobody's going to sell, you know, uh, uh, so they have to take some assets. And many of them are non-core to them. So like neighborhood shopping centers, especially unanchored, are not core to them. And so they will say, hey, now it's a good time to sell it. So I usually call these guys and say, hey, sell me your non-core stuff. Right. Yeah, I mean, when the seller usually want to sell as a portfolio, yeah. but then the buyers only want to keep certain pieces of it. Right. Yeah. They want to streamline their operations, whether it's geography or, you know, the tenant base. They want to you know, keep certain assets. You can kind of pick and choose um, some other ones, that, you know, they want to sell off. Right. Yeah. And, and that's always been the case in almost all asset classes. When acquisitions happen, yeah. you keep the best. You want to get rid of something or yeah. it's taking too much time. Right. Then it's a, hey, sell it. Um, so we, uh, uh, from a value-add standpoint, we look for institutions who are selling, even big developers uh, who are now big developers, but 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they're small developers. Yeah. So they have small assets and they say, hey, it's really not worth my time. So we'll sell it to them. Okay. Um, and then after you identify these assets, uh, I guess, just from a financing standpoint, uh, how does financing differ for you know retail space versus you know multifamily or industrial? Is it pretty similar to look at it in terms of how they under, underwrite? Uh, no, retail is a little more harder in terms of more expensive. Uh, just because multifamily is uh, heavily dependent on the government uh, entities. Uh, so there's, yeah. yeah. So there's, uh, you know, you have cheap financing. Mm -hmm. um, and industrial right now is the darling of the market. So industrial might be cheaper too. Um, uh, retail is a little riskier. So it's a little bit pricier. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you have also uh, full recourse loans effectively mm -hmm. uh, if on construction side and on acquisitions you can do both non-recourse uh, and recourse but uh, non-recourse is more expensive and uh, by non-recourse meaning you don't have any liabilities mm -hmm. just like in multifamily yeah uh, but they're a little more expensive okay yeah so there's no government back no, no government Just back. CMBS. Yeah. Um, uh, CMBS is one option, yeah. uh, but those are for stabilized properties. Okay. Uh, and and you can only lever up sixty percent in CMBS. Uh, other ones you can go up to seventy yeah. percent, but seventy thirty is a good uh, uh, number to keep in gotcha. mind. Gotcha. So you you have a lot of relationship with local banks. Local banks, yeah, yeah good lenders, uh, and because these are all small balance loans, also, right? right? They're not a big big balance. Yeah. Um, just tell reader, our listeners, so what's a non-recourse versus a recourse loan? So a recourse loan, today's market uh, for, let's say, a construction loan mm -hmm. is around 4.5%. If I were to acquire something, it's going to be around 5, 5.15%. Mm -hmm. Recourse, okay? Non-recourse is going to be 7% plus. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a little bit different spread there uh, yeah. for the banks to get comfortable yeah. um, with, you know whether you're signing your names on the dot line or not. Or, right. Yeah. And non-recourse are not usually uh, banks. They're all real estate special lenders. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so you identify the asset, you get the financing in piece, uh, pieces in, and then let's say the current uh, operator is not maximizing the value of the property. I mean, how do you go in and add value to that? Do you, do you get more le national leasing agents? Do you get to the in-house? Do you kind of try to give incentives to new tenants? How, do, how was your strategy for 
attracting people to the air, you know, to, to add value. To sure. Uh, so you can, um, there are numerous ways to add value, yeah. uh, but we have a principal mindset. Hey, this is my property now. We are going to hire, try to hire the best agents, but the agents also, um, you know, they don't make a lot of money on leasing alone. So they will hire, they will work with hundred different owners. So we want to make sure that, uh, you know, they spend the time, uh, to your asset. Mm-hmm. So it comes again back to human relationships mm-hmm. and treating mm-hmm. them well and treating them uh, fairly. Uh, what we are very active owners, we kind of, if we hire the agent and say, hey, look, if you have a potential tenant even looking, I'll be there. Or uh, uh, I'll take the first phone call or second call mm-hmm. and try to negotiate the deal. So make it easy for him or her. And, and they get paid also on time. Um, a lot of uh, landlords make mistakes by that, hey, the agents are not doing the job, so I won't pay them. And then that creates a lot of bad blood. Uh, but it's a human relationship. He helps you she, and you help them. So it kind of works out. Uh, in retail, everything is about leasing. It's not multifamily where you can build it and people will come. This is real. Mar- your marketing is all done by your leasing guys. And so if you can afford to keep them in-house, great. Uh, but... Uh, while you're still small, uh, you may have to build relationships with local guys. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I mean, just like any, really any asset class, I mean, relationship is so important with the brokers, you know, with leasing agents, with banks. I mean, it's a small community after, after if you've been in the space long enough, you can know everybody, right? So you don't, yeah. want, you don't want to have bad bloods. It um, doesn't matter if you're in single family, you don't want to just you know, screw a broker over, not pay them a commission, and right. you might gain a few thousand dollars, but over long term, nobody's gonna bring you deals anymore, they're not gonna, you know. Yeah, it's not worth it, Yeah, it's not worth it. No, absolutely, I think that's a lesson learned for everybody. Um, uh, <clears throat> and then, um, on, the, on the tenant improvement side, uh, is that pretty similar, you, you kinda, uh, trying to get it leased up, you give them certain uh, incentives to, Yes, so there. see the thing is, uh, it varies also on the market. Mm-hmm. Right now, let's say Dallas is super hot. Uh, and so on new construction, TIs are now happening uh, technically 25 to $35 a square foot. But if you uh, keep this in mind, when we build out, we are essentially building a gray box shell to a tenant. Mm-hmm. So uh, you as a tenant walk in is like, hey, I see only gray walls. I still need to put in electrical. I need to pl- put plumbing, which is bathrooms. Mm-hmm. I need AC, flooring, painting, and all that stuff. That alone is going to cost, you know, for a thousand square feet is going to be around seventy to eighty dollars a square foot. So eighty thousand dollars. So as as a landlord, we'll come in and say, hey, we'll pay you around, you know, twenty five to thirty five thousand dollars towards your build out cost. Gotcha. So that way they get instant relief. They get also four months roughly is typically on average for build out time. Mm-hmm. So they're not paying rent during that time. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and they're typically triple net leases when you look for Yes, tenants? all retail are all triple net okay. leases. And has, has really, I guess Texas, especially in Texas, I mean, uh, insurance and taxes is a big component of it. Yes. Um, how do you get tenants? I mean, you pretty upfront with them about, you know, whether do do they ask you to project the taxes going forward, or um, how do they get comfortable with changes in taxes? So let let me go back to the basics. Triple yep. net you mentioned is net net net, yep. right? So it's uh, that means the tenants are responsible for paying real estate taxes. Yep. They're responsible for paying the insurance, property insurance, yep. and they're responsible for paying uh, common area charges. Okay. Common area charges is uh, made up of you know sweepings and uh, cleaning and trash and uh, you know, utilities that kind of gives everybody the benefit. What we cannot control as landlords are taxes because the city controls that, right? And uh, we can protest it uh, and we hire companies to protest taxes. They don't, the tenants don't hire the company? You guys hire the company to protest the ta- taxes for all the tenants? Uh, yes, okay. uh, for the for the property. Okay. Yes, because each tenant doesn't get I me. Mean, yeah, this real estate tax is different than what they get. Gotcha. That's a business tax. This is a property tax. Yeah. So uh, we'll, uh, the benefit is if we protest, it actually goes down. It benefits them, but it's it's a pass through to the tenant. Mm-hmm. Same thing with insurance. We typically, if we have multiple properties, we can have umbrellas policies to kind of keep the prices lower, and so keep the cams low. So those two things we tell um, the tenants that, and they know that, hey, they don't have that much control. Yes. The common area charges is something where they have control. 
so where they will say okay look it's uh, it's x dollars today it shouldn't exceed by five percent or ten percent per year so and that's okay because the utilities are going to be pretty much standard uh, sweeping is standard landscaping is standard okay. trash is standard so gotcha um so you you identify the assets you finance it you got you got at least add value to it and what's your exit strategy typically? So as soon as we lease it mm-hmm. uh, and everything stabilizes, rents are being collected, collected. Uh, our strategy is to sell it. Um, and and like I said, you know, our mantra was build it, fill it, sell it, or buy it, fill it, sell it. Yeah. And that's a good way to recycle the capital of our investors. They've invested, they've been patient with me for three, four years. They get cash out and then they reinvest in other deals. Yeah, perfect. And say a, a shopping center has maybe four buildings, have like maybe 20, 30 tenants. Do you sell them in pieces to inv- different investors or do you like to sell them as a whole portfolio to to one investor? No, so there will be one partnership yeah. that owns the entire asset. Yeah. Um, so we had uh, a 50,000 square foot center. Yeah. It's one partnership and then you can come in at a particular amount and that's your percentage share. Sure. So uh, it's, it's uh, and that's the right way to do it uh, because uh, e- even if anything happens to us or something, the partnership owns that asset. And so uh, partnership can decide to either fill it, sell it or whatever. So it's just cleaner for investors. Yeah, absolutely, protect, on, yeah. on per deal basis, yeah. not on a fund uh, thing. Right, uh, right. And yeah. even within the asset, some people condominiumize it. Yeah. Um, as long as the developer is there, it's okay. But then sometimes what happens is half the buildings are filled out, half the buildings are not completed because they've gone somewhere else. Which and so you, then you, uh, yeah. if you remember in single family homes, uh, Bridgeland was a good example. It was developed halfway mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. recession happened and the main developer you know, went broke. So half the homes are built and you built an, you bought a nice house and then next door all everything's green and weeds everywhere because it didn't happen. Right. So. Uh, the best thing is to create a partnership yeah. and partnership owns the entire asset. Okay. And what about on the exit side? Do you sell as one whole package? Yes. Or? yes. Okay. So it's each not, asset, yeah, each asset is sold. Okay. Uh, you're not selling, you're not breaking them up to sell to it. Uh, uh, it depends on the size now. Yeah. Now that's a unique strategy where if I've acquired something big mm-hmm. and said, hey, one portion I can sell now to reduce the risk of the asset. Yeah. Uh, or I may get better value of it, yeah. then it's great. Then I can do that. So sometimes centers that have a couple of patch sites in front, mm-hmm. um, you can do that. Um, and, and But it's still within the partnership. Yeah, gotcha. And, um, and so, so we got the whole kind of the uh, project scope. And if, just as when you model it out, when you, Going, before you go into a project, what do you typically target in terms of returns? So uh, we look at uh, typically uh, 15 to 18% is the uh, return, annual return we are looking for. IR. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but that's tough to get. Yeah. The better the asset, it's actually tougher to get. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of underwrite to 12%. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's. Um, would be a very easy way to look at it. We look at, forget the numbers at the moment. Yep. We just look at the asset and say, okay, now then we stress test it and saying, hey, if rents go down by X, if vacancies increase by Y, and if my uh, my you know rehab cost goes up by this much, mm-hmm. uh, and when I exit, my cap rate goes up. Right. So when these one, two, three, four, I've stressed it, uh, then we come up with a base case. And if that gives me a 12% return, I'll take it because I've kind of protected myself on all those. And uh, if none of those four things happen, you know the returns are going to be much higher. So it's, uh, and our structures give investors the right to participate uh, in, if it doubles, it doubles. Uh, but at least on the base case, it's at least 12%. Okay. And uh, so let's talk about, I mean, that sounds great. I mean, I think, uh, especially when you look at the some of the uh, really, the flood of money that came in, really pressing the cap rate down, and uh, it's really hard to find, harder and harder to find products yeah. in any uh, asset class that's going to be that, give you that kind of return. So, if you really stress out your model and you still satisfy, you're going to have those kind of returns. I mean, that, I think that's the kind of things that investors really uh, look for, right? In uh, um, you know, as you get going and do a couple of projects, so you can prove out your model and uh, give them confidence that you can. 
achieve those kind of returns. And um, so who are the typical investors uh, in your project? Is it the, do you have, uh, you know, uh, family, family, the, the, the wealthy families and, or the mostly individual investors? Um, yeah, it's all mostly individual investors, okay. uh, high net worth investors, uh, uh, or you know, high net worth professionals, yep. uh, you know, uh, accredited investors. Yeah, okay. and all accredited investors. But we also try to, uh, and and a lot of seasoned real estate guys who have invested, you know, uh, over several years, they kind of understand that hey, I don't need steady yield immediately. This is a value add strategy, yep. or this is a, a development strategy. Um, and we try to keep investors make sure that hey, they are investing a small chunk of their fortune in each deal. So it's not like hey, I'm looking for all your money in one deal. Right. Uh, if you're comfortable, ask a lot of questions, and only um, once they're satisfied, then invest. Okay. Uh, just explain what's accredited mean. Accredited, uh, the definition is now, it's anybody who makes over $200,000 per year, uh, and, and a net worth of at least a million dollars. Right. Not including your primary residence. Uh, not including your primary residence. Right. Okay, good. Just for people who are interested in, I think, you know, um, you know, this is not something you want to put your whole nest egg in. You know, this is just be part of your portfolio as you look at your 401ks, your stocks, your, uh, your single family portfolios. If you want something you want to participate in, um, this is a, another avenue for you to look at and uh, to diversify your portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have any international investors too nowadays? Do you see? People calling you from overseas and be interested in your projects. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm originally from India, so I have a lot of uh, friends uh, who are overseas. So they have invested. A couple of them have invested with me yeah. uh, in the past. Um, but you know, uh, my projects are fairly uh, bite-sized, so people can invest here. Yeah. Uh, so there's no. Uh, I'm dependent on like local local guys. International, I have to file one more extra tax form, <laughs> which is uh, you try to reduce that burden. Right. So it's K one for US. K one's for all investors. Okay. Uh, but then you have to do a withholding tax uh, for the uh, foreign investors. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, if you miss it, then there's a penalty. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's tax season. Yeah, even if it is zero, you know, they'll charge you whatever they charge you. So I'm like, okay, so might as well. Yeah. So you have five or six deals under your belt now. I mean, how many investors do you have? How many K1 do you have to issue this year? Um, no, so uh, we have diversified our investor yeah. base. Yeah. Uh, so I think collectively we have, I don't know, 20, 25 guys. But many of them are common. In, yeah, you know, Yeah. They do multiple deals with yeah. you. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so... Now, bring it back, you've done a number of deals now in Houston, Dallas area. Obviously, you can't do it by yourself. Who are some of the people on your team that helps you, what they do, and you know, why did you bring them on, and what, what activities do you guys do you do focus on, and what do they do? So, I'm the primary lead on, on uh, everything, yeah. uh, but we brought in uh, Eugene uh, almost three and a half years ago. Um, so, he helps in sourcing he hel deals, he helps in uh, underwriting the deals. Uh, he is a CFA, by the way, so he's very good uh, numbers, uh, and just double checking, you know, because uh, you can get excited by looking at a deal, but then uh, we need to make sure our numbers are correct, yeah. and then also managing the assets. Okay. Um, so uh, that that helps a lot, uh, and he's um, so that's Eugene. So what, had, what's his background? Uh, he uh, he's a graduate of NYU, yeah. um, and uh, he worked on Wall Street. Um, so very good at research and numbers and connections. And then yeah, he, over the last uh, seven, five to seven years, he's been in commercial real estate in Houston. And okay. he's very well connected with the broker community and investor community. Um, and, and so uh, uh, he's a good uh, you know, uh, temperament, good, um, humble guy so, yeah. uh, um, and, and smart. So I, I like working with them. He actually sourced the first deal, one of the projects for us we bought and that's how we met and they actually ended up selling it also so uh, uh, it's, it's really good and and then we I have another partner called Elliot uh, uh, his background was development mm -hmm. of small centers uh, so um, we developed uh, centers with him and uh, he's primarily responsible for interacting with contractors and uh, uh, the design folks to make sure that we uh, we develop it correctly okay so a lot of complementary skill sets. Yes. Yeah. For you know, for 
people that really you need team people on your team that can do different things fill different boxes and uh, um, share the workload and you know, add value right yes uh, I mean there are uh, there are a lot of guys who are not on my direct team but that we work with is like the, our contractor has built all our projects mm -hmm. he knows us we know them and we know how it works uh, uh, our leasing teams in Dallas leasing team in Houston they work on almost all our projects yeah so uh, we have invested a lot of time in that ecosystem the same architects same our engineers in the area um, and so that way it's like almost like making movies if I'm making a movie I bring the same star cast the director producers everybody's together yeah you finish it, you move on to the next one. Yeah. Not necessarily, but we are all one extended team. Right. And you mentioned it before we started the podcast, you mentioned you moved to a new post oak office. And part of the reason you moved here is because you kind of have a ecosystem here uh, in the building that you have different people you can go to for appraisals, for you know construction development, or for financing. Um, you know, just like on your team. So. Yeah, one-stop place, yeah. Uh, and it's free, right? <laughs> and and so it's like you like to be around the people where you can get this information. Yeah. And and so uh, you surround yourself, you know, with with the right guys. You have to be in that environment. Yeah, and it's co-working, so it's flexible. Yeah. yeah. So so whoever listening in, if you need a good. Uh, Working space, call Nikhil, maybe he will hook you up with a, with a good deal. <laughs> no, firm space is, is, is good. Uh, yeah. and it's, you know, you can have a bigger office, you can have a small office, but it, it's central. So if you have client-facing stuff, if you're, it, this is good. Okay, great. And, um, okay, let's, you ready to dive into one of your deals? Sure. Okay. Sure. Um, let's talk about Pecan Plaza? Yes. Okay. So give us an overview. When did you buy this asset? How did you come across it? Uh, and then, you know, what did you do with it? So uh, I happen to live in Sugarland. So I, I when I when this came uh, on the market or it was listed for leasing mm -hmm. uh, for a long time, and I said, hey, this market is doing really well, but uh, the occupancy is fairly low in the center. Um, Just driving by, by looking. No, at no, we uh, we uh, driving by, yeah. but we also looking at uh, you know online all yeah. the time, and we speaking to a lot of brokers. Yeah. And one of our brokers brought this deal to us and said, the thing is when you call brokers and say, hey, we are looking for stuff, yeah. suddenly you get 500 deals, <laughs> right? And then so you have to sort it out. Yeah. Uh, and when this came to mind and said, okay, this looks like a good asset because it's in good condition and it's in a good market. When was it built? Uh, 1994. Okay. But it's got good bones. You know, Sugarland, if you've been there, it's like, you know, old brick stuff, orange stuff. And so we kind of dug deeper and said, hey, at one time, Sugarland was developed by Heinz Corporation. So they developed all these major stuff and they had these rules how everything should look and build. So it was good quality. Um, and then we figured out that it was 100% occupied uh, in 2008. And then the foreclosure crisis happened. Uh, it went into foreclosure. And a big private equity fund bought it uh, as one of 45 assets in 2009 or 2010. And I said, okay, that's exactly when I said, hey, this is an institution. They bought 45 of them. And um, that team is a very small team. And I think uh, out of those 45 assets, 44 were in Nevada and Arizona. Oh, okay. So, and I'm in Texas. Yeah, and oh. one in Houston. Mm -hmm. I mean, or percentage-wise, right. it was a very small one. So yeah. you can imagine if you're a small team, you are going to spend most of your energy where your most of your portfolio is, mm -hmm. and you won't be able to do this one. Yeah. So we approached them, and uh, um, uh, they typically their strategy is also when they buy, they buy you know during a foreclosure crisis um, for you know really cheap, mm -hmm. uh, but then they wait for people like us who are value add guys to sell it to us, and uh, they extracted a very good price from us. Uh, but we felt like, hey, if we bought it, and if we put in our energy to kind of fill it up, then we can create value. Yeah. So when you bought it, it was only 40, 50% occupied? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the asset was not distressed in terms of it doesn't look uh, bad. It's mm -hmm. not financially distressed. It's owned by a big billion dollar fund. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not operated well. Right. And why is it not operated well? Is because they just don't have the resources or they don't want to deploy that much time in this one. Yeah. And so when you bought it, do you have trouble financing because it's 40-50% uh, lower occupancy? Um, yeah, it was. Uh, we signed up for guarantees, mm -hmm. um, and uh, we felt, uh, you know, uh, we kind of explained to the bank why the reason was. Mm -hmm. 
and so they kind of understood and said okay then uh, we can finance it and again we use the same we use conservative leverage we don't want to do 80 20 or 90 20 mm-hmm. or whatever because that adds a layer of financial risk to an asset so we go in with heavy equity at least 30 35 percent equity mm-hmm. so this one was about 30 70 uh, yeah i mean i think around 37 63 okay okay so we sleep well at night we can afford our mortgage whatever happens so we can do it Right. I mean, that definitely uh, adds some comfort to the, for the investors, too, even though they have to pull, pull a little bit more up front. Yeah. But it's uh, give you a sense, especially on a, on a retail asset, um, you know, that history kind of hasn't been performed as well, give you that uh, some cushion, right? Yeah, yeah. No, so uh, one thing, you know, the benefit of working at GE and all these institutional investors is we break the word risk down different buckets. There's construction risk, there's leasing risk, there's, uh, you know, uh, uh, financing risk. Um, And so we say, okay, construction, we have kind of mitigated because we have a good contractor. We know what the pricing is, this so and so forth. We know uh, leasing-wise, you know, it may take certain time and time frame. So, um, and the rates are low. I mean, so we can manage that leasing risk. And financing-wise, the biggest thing is why people go into foreclosure is they have levered 90-10. It feels good that, hey, I put only 10% in the money. But when things go wrong, you can't afford the debt and it always goes down. So we try to manage that financing risk to like 65, 35, 70, 30. Gotcha. Okay. And then what do you do? How, how do you get a, uh, up to 90, 100%? We actually took it to 100%. Yeah. How, uh, how long did that take? So uh, we bought in almost 2.75 years, we were in and out. Mm. Um, That's quick. Yeah, but it was a lot of a lot of work, a lot of presence. What had happened is this property didn't have a property manager or owner for a long time, and if they did, it was a fun guy who wouldn't give. Uh, you know, they don't have time and resources. So uh, the guys who were occupied there uh, or were uh, leasing, they were very unhappy. So we made our presence felt. Uh, we were there almost every day uh, to just build relationships and solve basic problems, saying, hey, this area is not clean, this is not taken care of. So we put in a program there, uh, we gave them our mobile numbers, I mean, and it's just personal touch because they are CEOs of their own business, right? So now they have a number for me, and then, you know, oh, I've been paying rent all these years, but I don't get anything out of it. Right. Um, And so some landlords are very impersonal. Here, uh, we are walking the spaces and say, hey, we'll fix some things for you. Uh, to build good rapport. We change the lighting, we change the landscaping, we change, so then they felt like, hey, someone's actually taking care of us. Yeah. It's just not a you know financial transaction. And so uh, that took us you know six months of trust building, and then they finally recommended, instead of you know a new tenant would come, and they, of course, naturally go to an existing tenant, they would badmouth the existing landlord, and so you won't right. get a lease. Yeah. Here it was the opposite effect. It's like, hey, I can call my friend, I can go do this. And so um, that's how we slowly started. And then our leasing team did a good job. I also, we own the business. We felt like what kind of businesses would fit in here. And our mandate, um, our strategy was that, hey, it's a suburban area. It's on the border of Missouri City and Sugarland. Lot of parents, lot of kids. And as, as a parent of two kids, you know you need weekend activities. So if we can attract uh, entrepreneurs who are opening tutoring centers, hair salons, any women-oriented business, uh, it brings a lot of stability, it brings a lot of vibrancy. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the thing is this center was a mix of uh, even dentist and stuff, but after six o'clock it dies down, right? Mm-hmm. So people want that vibrancy with retail. So uh, we brought in an ethnic grocer, an Indian grocer, uh, that will bring seven-day foot traffic. Very good, solid operator. Right. And so suddenly, a, a dead center is revived because you have a lot of foot traffic. Yeah, and open later. Yeah. Yeah, and they open till nine o'clock. Right. And so we had a complementary mix of tenants where there are like we had five anchors in that center, big ones. Mm. And so uh, uh, two of them were restaurants and bars. So that brings in the evening crowd. And then we had a taekwondo place that's open in the evenings too. So. Right. That, you know... Uh, in the weekends. Uh, yeah, yeah, in the weekends. So it looks f- uh, full relatively uh, uh, versus completely vacant. Yeah. So uh, it was a good tenant uh, mix strategy that we did. Um, and then we cut good deals with almost all the tenants. We met each one. Uh, leasing team had a good job, uh, you know, had a good owner who was responding quickly. Okay. 
So when you bought it, what you bought it from the fund at? Do you buy on the actual? Do you buy it on the six cap or seven? Or do they ask you? I mean, was it a pretty expensive if, deal going? Yeah. In? So if they ask me for a price, yeah. uh, it doesn't make sense yeah. because uh, the cap rate is an easy way to look at it. Yeah. But when you're only forty percent occupied, fifty yeah. percent occupied, you don't have enough cash. Right. And so it can be two cap. Yeah. Right. Uh, we do a fundamental financial analysis. Like we bought it for X. Yep. Now, how much value we can create and can we get out of it? Y, mm -hmm. whatever the cap rate comes out to, comes out to. Yep. But that's not my mandate. Yeah, yeah, so, it's true. Sometimes in cap, especially on, on value add deals, is really not a good yeah, it's, it's indication not, of. It's not irrelevant. Yeah. I mean, it's irrelevant to be honest. Right. Uh, it's just what you buy it at. Can you create value? Yeah. Cap rate may be important when you exit. Because yeah. by that time you assume that hey, it's ninety hundred percent full. That's right. Yeah. That's where you can play some uh, yeah. value. So, uh, um, we, uh, if I were to tell the price, then it's like, hey, these guys made probably, you know, uh, double or triple yeah. their money. But they bought it, it's a financial asset, they bought it at, as a portfolio, so I don't know what that cost was. Right, yeah, no, absolutely. So, uh, it sounds like a good story, and when you exited, uh, were you able to hit most of your projections? Uh, we exceeded our projections, because okay. uh, we, we, we underwrote that, hey, we're gonna fill it up to 90%. Yeah. Uh, we actually ended up leasing it to 100%. Um, and, and the thing is, even when you sell it, the next buyer or their bank will say, hey, it won't be 100% full all the time anyway, so there's going to be a haircut. So we kind of prepare, yeah. uh, but it's always good to take it up to 100. Yeah. Um, and and uh, uh, our, ret our returns were very good. Yeah. Um, our investors made a 91% return on equity in 2.75 years. Yeah, double your money. Almost. Yeah, almost, yeah. 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 So uh, That's like a 30% yeah. return. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, if you were to analyze, <laughs> if you were to do it. But the thing is, yeah. I mean, we had, we had kind of told our investors uh, when we underwrote it, mm -hmm. you're going to make probably 30 to 40%. Right. Because what if it didn't work out, right? Or it took longer. But we work as if like, hey, we need to exit. And so uh, if it's in a good scenario, it'll go higher. And so there's no cap on investors, so they can make as much as they want. I mean, as much as we make. Right, that's great. Um, so, and not every deal is easy peasy. It sounds like this deal definitely has challenges. What are some of the mistakes and lessons learned that you took away from this deal? So this is, uh, was, um, we have done acquisitions before. So uh, it's, it's, we like, pricing is one thing. The leasing is tough, and uh, leasing, uh, especially reviving a dead center, is extremely tough. And each one is a tough negotiator. <laughs> so if you're not in it for the end game, a lot of personal, I mean, some uh, guys are haggled so much that the brokers get pissed off mm. or uh, the owners get pissed off. You're talking about tenants. Yeah, I don't want to yeah. work with this tenant. Right. And I'm like, no, I need him to fill because every 2% or every 5% is my end goal. So if he is asking for this, if I can afford it, I'll let him in. If I can, I can't, but don't lose your core because that's their job uh, right. to negotiate, right? Um, and so we kind of manage our leasing teams also. It's like, hey, if you find a haggler, pass it on to me. Don't, because yeah, if they don't return calls and all that stuff, you, you don't want to deal with an upset or someone who will upset you, right? Okay. But it doesn't cost them anything, it costs me. So yeah, uh, I'll listen and, and, and do it. but. As long as they lease, that's victory. Right. Um, and then, uh, so it's not a fun process at that time. But uh, that's one thing. Second thing is, we had 21 tenants in this. So sometimes we have kind of fixed everything and then the problem emerges because these are small, unanchored too. And they're not financially distressed, but you know, divorces happen or partners are breaking up or business strategy is different. So then they'll call you immediately and say, hey, uh, can I get a rent break because of so-and-so? Or we were very lucky nothing happened during Harvey, but people were still saying, uh, the center is good, but our home got flooded. Really? So, yeah, and I don't know whether it's true or not, because then everybody kind of says the same thing. Right. They're all looking for breaks from landlord. So you kind of you know, use your own judgment to say, hey, where you can work with them to kind of do it. Yeah. And sometimes they just want someone to talk to kind of thing. So I'm like, okay, fine, we'll do it. So it takes a lot of human... Uh, touch to kind of get these guys stable yeah. and once it's stabilized then you can either refinance it or you can sell it right yeah absolutely I mean any deal you want to do a value add it's not it's never just straightforward and simple and just work like the projections there's gonna be hurdles there's gonna be 
um, tough tenants or you know things you don't always see. That's why you sensitize and stress test your models and uh, and uh, make sure get your hands dirty. That's what it takes a lot of times. Yes, uh, the thing is, we also relied on our first mistake. I learned is there was a company that is is a national company. They go and do all the due diligence on yeah. your behalf on the property, um, and so I thought they would cover most of the things, but that's not the case. They gave me a nice fat report, uh, but it was missing a lot of things. And one thing was um, uh, a portion of the center didn't have any electricity, and I said, of course, it's been vacant, so it's dark. But where, once we bought it, we realized that there was no copper wire in the back. Okay. So it was stolen during the copper crisis in 2008, 2009, right? So it, they made probably five, eight hundred bucks out of it, but it cost me $18,000 to replace it. Wow, yeah. So uh, those kind of due diligence items are important, you know, on electrical side. You look at the quality of the ACs. Even though the air conditions are not responsibility of the landlord to attract a new tenant, they will ask for guarantees on the AC, um, or they may ask for new stuff. So you have to kind of put that into a budget. Um, and then a lot of contractors and sub-vendors, they look at the size of the center, and they give you a price per square foot, saying, hey, uh, we wanted to pressure wash and chemical wash the center, and someone gave me a quote of $30,000. Because it's, it's less than a dollar a square foot. I'm like, sounds a little too high. Uh, and so I made some calls personally, and we ended up doing it for $4,000. Wow, that's a big difference. <laughs> yes, because people are just coating stuff. Yeah. And now the thing is what's happened in chemical washing and stuff yeah. like that is people just spray the chemical and yeah. then let the chemicals do the work. Mm. So there's no real work physically happening. It happened in a day. Yeah. And this wasn't like I found fly-by-night guys. I found guys who actually do stuff for the major REITs right. who are doing it. Yeah. So if you're... Uh, not watching every dollar, yeah. uh, you Good. can be taken to the cleaners. Yeah, no, I mean, if you're a big fund, you have things in Nevada and things that you gotta, big things you gotta watch out for, you're not really paying attention to the everyday stuff and they can really eat you up. Yeah, it's because every little, little, little like yeah. $25,000 saved on that one, right. I can use it to add more lights or a different cost, right? Absolutely. And if I don't spend it, it's actually saving. So therefore, I have not borrowed that much, and therefore, it helps the partner. So that kind of mentality is needed. Yeah, absolutely. On, on, on those deals, you know, you got to really put your time in and learn yeah. a lot of details. All right. So that's a great story, a great project that uh, you guys successfully pulled off. Um, we're going to get into a, the general advice segment. Okay. You ready? Okay. So obviously you're working on five or six deals at a time, You have, but you have people in your team helping you. How do you manage your time? Uh, um, very carefully. Yeah. Um, because uh, um, like Eugene is more of the networking and mm -hmm. the outside stuff because it takes a lot of time to be out. Yeah. Um, I spend a lot of time analyzing our assets and our existing assets mm -hmm. and, and just trying to move it on a day-by-day -day basis. Um, so that way it's it's hyper-focused, only yeah. these assets. We don't want to do 50 deals, we just want to do so many deals. Do you, use a, do you use a Google Calendar? Do you use a task? Do you, do you have a checklist every day that you use on an app? Uh, yeah, yeah. paper pencil guy. Uh, at least for the task list, yeah. I'm a paper and pencil guy. Okay. Uh, I use my calendar on Outlook aggressively. Um, and then most of it is on text or whatever. But the apps, uh, I'm not. Have, but writing it down helps me. Yeah. And then just check off one every every morning. So right. that's a good habit to kind of write down. Yeah. I know there are lots of apps now for yeah. tasks and everything. But, yeah. You know, sometimes that was a good just a paper and pencil write it down, and so you don't. So you. I think the 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 actual process of writing it down help you remember things and help you think about it. Exactly. Uh, right. Yeah, so I, I walk around with a diary or a book and like I have pens everywhere, including cars and yeah. <laughs> so I, I need to write it down. Okay. Do you have any uh, diet exercise routines? Um, yes. Uh, one is um, we are surrounded by good healthy eating guys. Uh, so that helps you or you surround yourself with healthy eating guys. So we have portion controls. We try to add as much green as we can per day. Yeah. And then it's a light lunch. And if you can eat uh, in, even better, because uh, you're controlling your portions. Uh, if you're meeting for people, we meet for coffee. So that way you're not eating you know, at big Tex-Mex restaurants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And during lunchtime is where you want to be active in the afternoon. Because my hours are very compressed mm -hmm. and with very few products. So I want to be active. And then you kind of leave. So 
uh, we don't go for heavy meals as much. Right. Um, and That's then uh, diet-wise, uh, sorry, exercise-wise, now we have tried a goal of uh, exercising either at the gym or walking and stuff at least four times a week. Right. Um, so that and it helps because Eugene does that. Elliot is seventy four. He's also uh, walks. He'll say, "Hey, I gotta go, go do my ten thousand steps." And so we have kind of worked uh, around other people also who are eating healthy. So it helps you. Okay. Stay good. Sure. I think de- definitely um, you know it, people get busy, get stressed out. You know, I think exercise and the right diet really helps people get in the right mindset and be able to focus and you know grind through with some of the daily stuff and versus you're always low energy and it doesn't help no it doesn't help and, and especially it's your you're the owner and you're the entrepreneur so nobody else is going to save you except you right. right so you got to do that yeah uh what's one piece of advice you give somebody who was maybe a, a new investor maybe they're pat they want to get into a passive investing um you know what would you say to them to kind of get them started so a passive investor um uh, uh, is actually a good thing because they don't have the risk of uh, taking on the bank debt, right? So their risk is limited to their investment they're making, which is a good thing. And they can concentrate on doing their business or their job or what they're doing. Passive investors, when you're looking at a deal that's coming in, you have to study it and find out whether the developer is making every, is it well aligned with the investor? Uh, we make almost all our money on the back end. Um, and so that way, we are focused on moving that project along uh, because we are not getting paid much, yeah. right? Uh, we find a lot of deals where everything is padded up front on fees and management and all that stuff. It's so heavy and they say 21% returns and investors are just used to looking at 20% return. Mm. It doesn't mean that it's gonna be achieved. Uh, so spend those four, like, uh, like four or five things on, like, hey, what's my entry cost? Yeah. What's my exit? Uh, how's the investor align? little bit of track record and uh, whether I can uh, stay in you know and sustain uh, my uh, if there's a loss right that's how I would look at it. yeah absolutely and I have a phone call and call them call the sponsor and you know talk to them and get make a personal connection and you know see if you're really something you can just get a feel of you know what this person's like you know yeah absolutely I mean yeah. there's, there's there's no bad questions yeah. get to know people yeah. uh, and if you want to go see the project you go see the project um, and then and only then you kind of take a decision because um, the worst thing is like you invested just because your friend invested I didn't pay attention and then you took a loss and then you're hurting yourself yeah um, and that has its own little consequences so ask as many questions as you can and okay. and um, kind of at least try to distinguish between a deal that has everything up front where the developer is making versus someone who's aligned well. right okay what about advice for, for somebody who wanted Buy a, be a general partner or want to buy a retail center, maybe just on a smaller size, um, you know, uh, what advice would you give somebody who's maybe trying to buy their first property? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think narrow the strike zone and say, if you live, you know, just like buying homes or anything, buy within your vicinity of control. Know your name. Don't, yeah, know don't, your go, don't go to San Antonio, don't go to Austin, go to Houston first. If the market is big enough, we have 250 million square feet in Houston alone, okay? Uh, and let's say I think around 30% is re, uh, neighborhood retail. So there's uh, 60, 70 million square feet. You're gonna buy 10,000 square feet or 15,000, you can find it. But, so first close to home. Second thing is, uh, what is it that you're buying for? Are you, am I just holding it to get some yield? Or am I gonna do a value add? Or am I going to look for exit? Uh, it's very uh, easy to get into real estate. It's very difficult to get out. Yeah. Because a lot of people bought an asset because it was cheap and I got in 100%. And within a year, half of them left. What do you do with that? How do you refill it? So on and so forth. So that you have to kind of play into that account. No, absolutely. Got to do our homeworks. Um, and really know your area. I mean, don't go. Yeah. <laughs> even even within Houston, there's so many different neighborhoods, so many different pockets. Um, you know, if you're not familiar with it, definitely talk to the broker, talk to the leasing agents and get to know the uh, asset and, don't just uh, you know do a gut check and yeah just because your friend made money doesn't mean you will make money uh, and and you think Sugarland, Katy, Woodlands these are all good high end markets mm-hmm. but you have to depend on you know what rents are getting paid and collected yeah. you know, just because uh, a new center will say hey charge thirty five dollar rents you may not get thirty five on your old small center yeah so uh, you have to underwrite accordingly yeah every asset is different. 
Um, last question in this segment. Do you, is, I didn't prepare you for this one. Do you have a mentor, uh, whether it's a GE or that really helped you uh, or when you get into the retail, first got into the retail space, did you have somebody to you know, ask questions or uh, you know, kind of help you along? Uh, I don't have a direct mentor per se, but I, I um, have a mantra of never stop learning. So pick up everything uh, as much as you can and do a deep dive. So even before I started retail, I got into retail a year before mm. to understand it. And so where people fail, where, how do I get out of it? Yeah. Ask the end game questions, then you, it will solve yourself. And so we'll say, okay, if we create a company and I said, look, uh, I can get rich really quickly or I can get rich really slowly, yeah. but uh, uh, I'll have more friends at 20 years from now. Yeah. So that helps you kind of say, hey, this is the right thing. This is where you can avoid some mistakes and you can plan it accordingly. Okay. Um, uh, but I think always the end in mind is important. Yeah, and be just be always thirsty and be always learn and right. uh, don't stop. Yeah, because you talk to mentors, they'll say, yeah, don't take too much risk, okay? Then you, I mean, these are all <laughs> right. classic stuff, right? Yeah. It doesn't, and then you kind of say, even they don't have the answer. Yeah, your hands dirty and yeah. really. But you study like who the best performer is, yeah. how are they doing, and benchmark them. And and then you kind of say, hey, practice everything that they are doing, but at a, sm- a smaller scale. Yeah, perfect. Good advice. All right, last segment. We're going to wrap it up. It's a fun segment. You ready? Sure. Okay. What do you do outside of work? What do you do for fun? Well, I play with my kids a lot. I play with my dog a lot, and then I go to. Uh, now lately, I've been going to the gym, so it gets me uh, excited. <laughs> nice. Uh, sounds like a, <laughs> a lot of activities. It's, I mean, it's it's busy when you have young kids, yep. right? So you have to spend the time and and do it. Okay. Um, What's the last book or movie that you recently seen that you liked? A book I read in its entirety was uh, Red Notice uh, by Billy Browder. Uh, it's about a hedge fund that was started in Russia uh, back in 2000 oh. and how it became the most successful fund and then suddenly Russian government kind of made him a uh, fugitive and uh, essentially labeled him a criminal. Oh. Um, oh. And, and it kind of story is an in, uh, a story in terms of how f- investments work in Russia, which is a very good book, intense. Um, but it's not it's not a fiction it's a, it's no a, it's real okay. it's a it's yeah. a guy who became so successful but then the russian government came after him right and uh they even went after one of his associates and kind of disappeared um and he's on a hit list uh, but he was able to pass a law uh with the help of the u.s government where if um uh, like all the all the people who are looting russia mm-hmm. um they are now on a particular website. You can kind of say hey, who's, who's corrupted yeah, and who's yeah, not corrupted. Yeah. And if uh, some of these guys are actually, uh, the nice guys are helping the U.S. guys, they need protection from us. Yeah. So uh, he, was pa- he was able to pass that law called the Minsky, Minsky Law. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and you have to be careful when you're investing in Russia. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, sometimes reading some of these stories make you make, appreciate the, even though our, our system's not perfect, but uh, you know I think we do have a le- good legal system, uh, helps protect investors, and uh, you know uh, they're more you know rule based. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 absolutely, absolutely. So it's yeah. it's good. Now he's a philanthropist and actually just helping you know human rights and stuff like that against you know uh, uh, any corruption right. and stuff. So. Okay, all right. What's your favorite Houston restaurant? Uh, Japaneros in Sugarland. Okay. It's a Japanese and Latino fusion restaurant in Sugarland oh, Town Center. Okay. Japaneros. Yeah, it's actually pretty good. Okay. All right. Uh, favorite Houston neighborhood? Uh, Sugarland. Sugarland. <laughs> I feel like you're going to say that one. Yeah. Definitely. A, um, it's got a lot of going for it. It's, you know, a lot of mixed-use areas and restaurants and good schools and... Uh, um, yeah, if I was single, I wouldn't be living there. But yeah. with family and kids, I think yeah. Sugarland is great, uh, and and it has everything that you need. Um, good, you know, uh, good clean environments all over, and so um, I like it a lot. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, but I think anywhere in Houston is not that bad. Right, and then uh, I know real estate people. Def- one of the things we have pride on is we have a lot of networking events <laughs> you, you can go one private one every week if you wanted to uh, 
do you is there a favorite one that you go to for commercial or maybe when you first started that you know you get to meet a lot of people and whether it's brokers or um, different things what, what events you like to go to or to meet I, people? Um, I like to go to very small intimate events um, sometimes they're put up by uh, ULI small development program or uh, Strive uh, is a big brokerage firm uh, they put a small intimate breakfast um, but you meet other developers and you get more substantial uh, uh, exchange of yeah, ideas yeah, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely I don't like the big stuff right a thousand people were kind of just yeah it's yeah. just like I might as well read about it <laughs> but that, that, that's my nature but yeah. if you're an outgoing like a major like broker type then you can meet with other people yeah and yeah, sometimes they bring in speakers and which helps you know yeah. if you're a new investor somebody bring a, whether the insurance guy or a broker guy doing do those talks they help you meet people right, but, uh, right. definitely uh, and you get to uh, develop some starting networking too but in a smaller environment you definitely do have deeper conversations right yeah. Um, if I were suggest on networking is like uh, break it down by like hey I need to go to a leasing I want to learn about leasing I go to a leasing one if yeah. I want to learn about banking I go to the banking one and so you just have to go once yeah. but you have learned every aspect of it I don't I just don't go general networking stuff right okay good that's great alright last thing how do people find out more about you Gil? Uh, LinkedIn sgrecapital.com uh, and um, or ARIA events yeah uh, or they, they can reach out to me we are not doing a full or they can join me and join my uh, mailing list mm-hmm. and we always give insight into our properties what's going on great thank you very much really appreciate being on the podcast thank you for having me All really right. appreciate it